You have rezzed 2.1, a Netrunner Reboot Project podcast. Episode 5, All the Money. Hey, this is Remy. The title card for this week is Gabriel Santiago, the consummate professional. He has a link of zero, a minimum deck size of 45, and a maximum influence of 17 under the Reboot Project. His uh, text, his ability, is the first time you make a successful run on HQ each turn, gain two credits. And his flavor text is... Of course I steal from the rich. They're the ones with all the money. The focus of this episode, and this is our last of the corset-only episodes, the focus here is on economy, specifically when it comes to generating credits. And that's pretty much the driving force behind the vast majority of the segments here, so we'll get right into it. Anonymous tip, calculating economy options. You know, I've said many times already in this podcast that a difference of one credit can be very significant. Many of the adjustments made by the Reboot Project are just a change of one credit. Something costs one credit more or less. The ability on the card is one credit more or less. And yet it may not seem that just one credit makes a difference when you see so many larger numbers being thrown around. Not only the res cost or install cost of certain cards, but even just looking at the economy cards. Magnum Opus gains you two credits. Easy Mark and Beanstalk royalties gain three. Security Subcontract gains six. Sure Gamble and Hedge Fund gain nine. Armitage code busting, you place 16 credits. But those large numbers belie the honestly much smaller numbers underneath. So we're going to analyze the economy cards here and how we can calculate them, which is going to play into the really the remainder of uh, this week's episode. So let me start with just a basic rubric for analyzing economy cards. One click equals one credit. That's because you can always spend a click to gain a credit. You can also spend a click to draw a card. So if we make a syllogism out of this, if one click equals one credit and one click equals one draw, then one credit equals one draw. Now, I'll make this aside, but I won't keep mentioning this. If you're an advanced player, you'll recognize that this is really only a generalized statement. It's something that can shift dramatically based on what deck you're using, what phase of the game you're in, what the board state is looking like. But I still think it's a useful sort of first-order way to look at the credit economy in the game. So, we've got this one-click equals one-credit equals one-draw formulation. And when we 
factor that into these individual cards, some of those big numbers we saw earlier start to melt away because we have to account for more than just the cost of playing the card in credits. We also have to account for the opportunity cost. That is the time you could spend or could have spent doing something else. Let's take Easy Mark or Beanstalk Royalties. They're the same card. For zero credits, you gain three credits. So that's a three credit gain, right? Well, not if we look at it in this, from this other formulation, because you have to take two clicks to get that card. The click you spent to draw it and the click you spend to play it. And then you get three credits. And if a click is a credit and a draw is a credit, then really you've spent the equivalent of two credits to gain three credits. So the net gain over just clicking to, to gain a credit is just one. Now, obviously, that's better than just clicking for credits because you would otherwise have only had two. Now you have three. And that's not nothing. One of the core concepts of Netrunner is that it's a game about efficiencies, doing as much as you can efficiently. And so to click for one and a half credits per click is not bad. Let's look at another one. Sure Gamble at Hedge Fund. Here, you spend five credits and you gain nine, so you've gained four, a net of four, right? Well, no, not exactly, because again, we have to account for the click to draw and the click to play, where we could have just clicked for credits, and then the five credit cost. So if you factor those clicks in as extra credits, then you've really spent the equivalent of seven credits to gain nine. The net gain is really only two credits over having just clicked. So instead of clicking twice for two credits, we've essentially clicked twice for four credits, which is twice as good. It's two credits a click. But I think it's useful to remember that the net difference is only two credits. Okay? Just a two-credit difference when you play this over just clicking. Infiltration, the runner card. For zero credits to play, you gain two. Except again, let's factor in the click to draw, the click to play. You could have clicked for credits. So really, it's a net gain of zero. And neutral cards tend to be less good than faction-specific cards. Here we see evidence of that. It is literally no more efficient to play this card for credits than just to click twice. Now that's why it has to have another utility, the expose ability, to make it potentially worth running. Well, those are all fairly simple, I think, to analyze, but they are all events or operations. Let's take a look at something a little more complex, magnum opus. Again, let's factor in the two clicks. One to draw, one to play, where you could have clicked for credits. There's also two memory units, which we're not accounting for in this analysis, and then five to install it. So really, right out of the gate, you are down seven credits and that extra memory unit. Now, it's more confusing to analyze this, and we'll get into more detail in the data sucker section. But if you install Magnum Opus and then do nothing, you're just out money. 
If you spend a turn installing it and then click it three times, you are still technically down three credits because you could have clicked for five credits, which includes the turn to draw the card. And instead, you spent five but gained six for a net of one. This is a terrible rate of 0.2 credits per click. But what if you spend the entire next turn using Magnum Opus? Well, now, using just a basic clicking strategy, you would have had nine credits, right? The turn, the click to draw, the four clicks where you installed and used it three times, and then the four clicks from using it four more times. Meanwhile, in that same time, Magnum Opus has gotten you also nine credits. So after two full turns, we've only broken even at one credit per click. But after three full turns, now you're up to 17 credits. We're up to about 1.3 credits per click. And it only goes up from there, which is why it's so useful to install Magnum Opus earlier. But it also highlights why Armitage code busting is a useful option too. It costs one to play. Now let's factor in the fact that you have two clicks, one to draw and one to play. So that puts us down three. And it's a resource, which can be a liability, but we're setting that aside for right now. So if you do the same thing as we just used in our Magnum Opus example, you install, and then you click it three times, well, you're already at parity with a basic clicking strategy because you've spent one and gained six for a net of five compared to the basic clicking, which again would include the turn to draw and the turn to play. So five to five. After you've fully exhausted it, you have a net gain of 15 credits, which is 1.5 credits per click. That's on par with Easy Mark, still ahead of Magnum Opus at this point. But I think, crucially, only five credits more than just clicking for all of those turns. Five credits doesn't seem like a lot, but it kind of is. And so the takeaway from this brief discussion for me is to remember that clicking for a credit is always an option. And what we want to do is finish as far ahead of that option as possible. It is very much worth including cards in your deck to minimize how often you have to click for credits. And though the absolute difference can be narrow, only one credit for easy mark, only two for sure gamble, only five for a full Armitage code busting. It is on these narrow margins that games can be won and lost. Sure Gamble. This time around, we're going to focus on pad campaign. Now, this isn't the flavor analysis, the thematic observation. So I'm not going to talk about how PAD stands for personal access device or that the flavor text says it's just like the one you got, only better. I'm not going to talk about that. Instead, what does PAD campaign do? Well, it is two credits to res, will give you one credit forever, and costs four credits to trash. This is really good. Now, when you first res it, and on that first turn you take a credit, you're down one. 
So if the runner's going to trash it, that's the time they want to trash it, when it's actually cost you not just the install, but also one additional credit. But four credits, there are lots of times the runner doesn't feel like that's worth doing. So you can leave pad campaign in what we call a, a naked remote server, right? no ice in front of it. And the runner probably isn't going to come and trash it. Even if they do, you've essentially spent one credit, well, if you count the install, two, to cost the runner four, which isn't a bad exchange. Really, and if they leave it in place, think about it, you're getting one credit every turn. In a way, that's just like Haas Bioroid's ability, engineering the future. Every time you install a card, the first time you install a card every turn, you gain a credit. Well, here, Pad Campaign just gives you that credit whether you install a card or not, in perpetuity. And if you've played any Haas Bioroid versus playing, say, Wayland in the core set, you can see that Haas Bioroid's just a lot better. The identity's ability is a lot better. Because in a, in a longish game of, say, 15 turns, maybe 20, you can install something every turn that's 15 or 20 credits over the course of the game. Whereas there are only six, right? There's only six um, transaction operations in the core set. Hedge fund and beanstalk royalties. Well, and security subcontract, but that's not exactly the same because you have to cough up an ice to pay for that too. So at most you're getting an extra six, maybe nine. Maybe you splash in some archived memories and get all the way up to 12. But that's a lot of work to get that money, whereas Engineering the Future just gives it to you for doing what you want to do anyway. And so does Pad Campaign. One little detail on Pad Campaign worth mentioning. Uh, we're going to talk about the timing structure of a run, the timing structure of turns in upcoming episodes. But a, a new, a slight wrinkle that a lot of new players don't really grasp right away is that there is a window for you to res cards right before your turn technically begins. Or a way to think of it is, after the runner's turn ends and before your turn begins, there is a narrow window where you can res cards. And with something like Pad Campaign, or the other campaigns, Adonis, for example, um, Melange, perhaps, you, that's where you want to res your card. You don't want to res it on the runner's turn, because then they know what it is and they can come and trash it before you get any benefit from it. But you don't want to wait to res it until, especially with Pad Campaign or Adonis Campaign, after you do your mandatory draw, because it's already past the start of your turn. So essentially, you're, you're telegraphing to the runner what you have. So with those campaign cards, those assets, res them before your mandatory draw. And you probably want to include Pad Campaign in your deck. It's a sure gamble. Data Sucker. Let's compare the different types of economy options that are available to the players. Uh, we can categorize these a couple of different ways. Uh, one way to categorize them is to take a look at a card that is truly just 
an economy card. And compare and contrast that with cards that are mm, hidden economy cards or sneaky or, or synergistic. Like the economy is there, but you have to do something to get it. We can also categorize them by the type of economy they give. There are burst, drip, and steady or click economy cards. For example, looking at the corp, uh, the neutral cards available for the corp are hedge fund, pad campaign, and melange mining corp. Hasbiroid also has Adonis campaign. Wayland has beanstalk royalties and security subcontract. Meanwhile, on the runner side, the neutral cards are Sure Gamble, Armitage Codebusting, and Infiltration. Criminal also has Easy Mark, Bank Job, and Data Dealer, whereas Shaper has Magnum Opus. Now, these are all just straight economy cards. Ah, infiltration is a little bit different. Security subcontracts a little bit different, but still, they're basically just straight economy cards. But you see, they function differently. For example, Hedge Fund, Sure Gamble, Infiltration, Easy Mark, and Bank Job, and Data Dealer. <laughs> Those are all burst options because you play a card and you get a burst of income. Hedge Fund and Sure Gamble give you a burst of four credits. Uh, Beanstalk and, and Easy Mark give you a burst of three. Bank Job can give you up to eight. Data Dealer, nine. Security Subcontract, six. Contrast that with Drip Economy. And drip Economy is like, like the drip of your faucet. That's why it's called that, because it just gives you a little bit all the time without any input from you. So Pad Campaign, Adonis Campaign, and nothing for the runner. Uh, these are these are drip options because they just, once you've put them in, they just keep feeding you a steady supply of credits. And then there are, I guess they're kind of like drip, but you have to actually do something. So I'm, I'm putting that in a third category, click credits or steady income. That's where you have Melange Mining Corp and Magnum Opus and Armitage Code Busting. All of those they don't automatically give you the credits, but it's something there that you can keep going back to and you can get a little infusion of money. Now, which of these is better? Is it better to have burst or drip or click? Well, as with so many things in this game, it depends. It depends on what you're trying to do and what your deck is trying to do. Sometimes you will find, and as we're just practicing playing comes out. Sometimes you'll find like, well, I've included these economy options, but I keep finding that I'm low on money. Like I never have the five credits I need to play the hedge fund or the sure gamble. Or maybe you feel like, well, I always have a lot of money. And so you can adjust which types of economy you're including based on which situations you tend to find yourself in. But take note, too, that there are other kinds of income other than these cards that are just strictly designed to give you money. And these are the, the hidden economy cards. 
not hidden like, oh, I had no idea that card gave me money. But they are really contingent on you doing something other than just playing it, installing it, clicking it. For example, HB has Engineering the Future. That gives you a credit every turn, but you have to install a card every turn. Of course, you want to install a card most turns, so you can end up with more than 10 credits just from this identity very easy. HB also has the Agenda Accelerated Beta Test. This gives you two free ice. You don't have to pay to put it in a position, so if it's like the fourth ice in a server, that doesn't cost you more. You don't have to pay if it's Tollbooth. But it is contingent on the next two cards being ice, otherwise they get ditched. Still, you could generate as little as zero or as much as 16 credits basically for free, from scoring that agenda. NBN's identity, Making News, gives you two recurring credits. That's two credits every turn, which is great. I mean, that's what Gabe's identity does. But you have to use them for, use them for a trace. So finding ways to trace is how you tap into that money. Wayland's identity, Building a Better World, gives you one free credit every time you play a transaction operation. But again, as we've discussed, there's a limit to how many of those there are in the core set. Isn't it interesting to note that of the four corp identities, three of them are directly related to generating money. Wayland also has shipment from Kaguya that can let you advance one or two other cards that can be advanced. And so, uh, depending on how you figure that, playing this one card to get two free advancements, an advancement usually costs you a credit and a click, that's like getting four free credits for the cost of one turn, one credit. And the neutral agenda priority requisition is similar to accelerated beta test in that it gives you two free ice, but of course, you know that you have ice that's unrest, unrest. So once again, you've paid for the positional cost already because it have already been installed, but you could make as much as 16 credits if you can res a couple toll booths. The runners also have uh, these hidden credit resources. In fact, they have even more than the corp does. In Anarch, Stimhack, well, there's a burst card if you've ever seen one. Nine credits for the cost to, and, and to do a run. I mean, like, so it's, it's really synergizing with clicking to run. You're clicking to run and getting nine credits, and there's absolutely no downside to playing Stimhack. It can't ever hurt you. Cyberfeeder gives you a recurring credit to use, although it does cost one. So it's going to take you a couple of turns to make that back, but again, one credit indefinitely if you can use it, just like Engineering the Future just like Pad Campaign. With Parasite, for every token that goes on that card, the strength of the ice it's on goes down by one. Not only can you use that to kill a card, of course, to kill an ice, but when you go to run it, if it has a lower strength, it's going to cost you less to break it. So that's really saving you money. It's similar to Ice Carver, except it does it to all the ice, makes everything cost one less. 
Now, these won't always save you money because maybe you're using YOG or Mimic or you don't pay uh, for boosting to match the strength of the ice, but that potential savings is there. A criminal. Gabe, the ID, gives you two credits every turn. All you have to do is make a run on HQ, which you probably want to do anyway. And the console, Desperado, gives you one free credit every run. So that could be as many as four in a turn. And what's interesting is they stack with those credits stack with a run on HQ for Gabe. So that first run on HQ with Desperado is worth three free credits. Account Siphon gives you 10 credits if you hit the corp for five. Of course, it has the downside of two tags, but even if you clear those tags, it is basically taking three clicks, one to play Account Siphon, one to clear a tag, and the second to clear a tag to gain six credits. Or if we count the card that we've drawn, uh, four clicks for six credits, which is 1.5 credits per click, which is a pretty good rate. Although naturally, if you add in Gabe and Desperado onto that, well, now you've gotten 13 credits and two tags for that one click. Or if you factor in all the other costs, the equivalent of four clicks for nine credits, which is a very good rate of return. Count Siphon is a very strong card. Uh, obviously, it's more than just a money card because you've also got uh, Crash Space and its two recurring credits that you can use to clear those tags. And in Shaper, Kate, the identity, and here again, two out of the three runner identities are just money. Saves you a credit on every install at the first install of every turn. So, very valuable, just like with HB. You, you want to be installing cards, just continually to install cards. You're not going to make as much money probably with Kate as you do with Haas Bioroid, but it's still quite a bit of money. The personal touch, giving one strength to an ice breaker, especially if it's one that costs more than just one credit to boost its strength, you're potentially saving one credit every time you use it or more. A modded is kind of like easy mark, but better in a way because it's not just playing a card to get three credits, it's paying a card to get three credits and install another card at the same time. See there as we see some efficiencies. The toolbox gives you two recurring credits, although it takes some time to break even looking at it from just a credit perspective since it costs seven to install, you need to use it over four different turns to make that money back, but it's doing other things too. And Aesop's Pawn Shop, uh, paired with Armitage or Bank Job or Wild Side or anything that costs just one or that you're done using, I mean, that's just uh, extra money that's built into that card. You can make a ton of credits with Aesop's Pawn Shop over the course of a game. So we see all of these different cards, and these aren't strictly money cards economy cards, but there's economy built into them all up and down the line, just being alert to all the different ways you can squeeze money out of the game is going to, uh, going to be really useful as you, uh, improve in your ability to analyze the economy options you have available.
The Toolbox How much economy should I have in my deck? Now, the Toolbox is a segment that's focused particularly on deck building, and we've discussed all of these different economy cards that are available. Now, how much do I actually need to put in my deck? Do I need all of them? No, but you need some of them. A good rule of thumb is that the Corp wants 9 to 12 economy cards in its deck. So that would include your three hedge fund, maybe your three pad campaign, uh, maybe your three Adonis campaign if you're HB. There you go, there's nine cards. And then when it comes to the runner, which largely is what I'm going to be focusing on here, uh, there's a Reddit thread that I came across. It's a fairly recent one, which is just how many economy should a runner have? And ShaperLord777 gives this short answer. As a rough rule of thumb, your deck should be able to generate 40 to 50 credits through its econ cards. When the revised corset was released in 2017, Team Covenant made a couple of videos about learning Netrunner. One of them was a basic deck building guide. I'll link to it in the show notes. But they also say 50 credits is about what you want. So look at the runner. If you have Sure Gamble and Armitage Code Busting, well, there's 60 credits right there. Like a Sure Gamble is going to make you four for each of those. Here we're not using uh, the intricate taking into account the click to draw and all that, just raw money. How much raw money can you generate? So Sure Gamble can do 12 for you because each one is actually netting you four. And Armitage Code Busting can generate 48 now that it's 16 instead of 12. So those six cards could be enough for your typical runner deck in the core set. I'll also share some other comments from that thread. Uh, one of the threaded responses goes, here's, here's a few comments from it. One is from Internet Lumberjack. He says, put in the amount that feels correct to you, and then cut five more cards and put in five more pieces of econ. My philosophy is that you should have the minimum number of pieces to make your strategy work, and the rest should be filled with econ. The worst decks I ever made were decks where the money and card draw was added as the last step to fill up space. The original poster, Suspicious Flan 1455, said, My problem is, once I stood down and thought, Okay, that's kind of what I want to have in terms of wincon and breakers. I've run out of space. Back to the drawing board. To which post-internet syndrome responded, Welcome to Netrunner deck building. This is exactly how it works. You never have enough slots to do everything you want, unless you're building an oversized deck, but the IDs that supported those are rotated or banned now. The tension between economy and win conditions is a constant struggle for every deck. Most of the time, economy is more important, though. Now, you can tell from those responses that this is not just taking into account the core set and what's available in the core set, and there's no rotated or banned cards in the reboot project. But in a second thread, Bwob, B-W-O-B, responded this way. Short answer, however much you think is enough, it probably isn't enough. 
My usual philosophy is that if I ever find myself having to take the basic action to click for credits, that probably means I need more econ. And again, though, if you're just using the core set, you have a limited number of available options. So there are some suggestions for how much economy to include in your core set deck, and the answer is probably as much as you can. Well, that brings an end, for the most part, to the economy part of the podcast. We're going to move on to the experiential data segment and take a look at another tournament-winning deck. This one is the Board Game Geek Octagon Tournament number one. Octagon was, or maybe still is, I don't know, but it was a, an app that you could use to play Netrunner or many other card games online. Octagon has long since been supplanted by Jinteki.net, which uh, our own Reteki.fun, not mine, but the one that we're using, the Reteki.fun is a, is a copy of. But in this Octagon tournament, there were 64 players. It ran from October 1st through November 18th of 2012. And so that means that puts it uh, roughly from about a month after launch, about six weeks after it was released at Gen Con, to about uh, three months after its Gen Con release. So here, I feel like we're going to really see a higher caliber of player than we saw in either the Gen Con Icebreaker Tournament or even the board, the Fantasy Flight Worlds Championship, where your finalists have been playing for two weeks apiece. Uh, we do have video or screen capture anyway of both of these octagon tournaments i'll link to those in the show notes the winner was malefact and i'll link to the thread and mostly most of my comments you hear are coming from the thread about malefact his decks and also some comments that he made and questions he answered about these decks and the runner-up was orange devil and there's also a thread for that one the second place decks and there's more conversation and more analysis in that thread, uh, but I'll let you search that out on yourself. Again, the uh, links are in the show notes. So we'll start with the runner deck for the winner, Malefact. He used Criminal, Gabriel Santiago, 45-card deck, 24 events, three account siphon, one Deja Vu imported from Anarch, three Diesel from Shaper, three Easy Mark three forged activation orders, two infiltration, three inside job, three special order, and three sure gamble. His hardware was just two desperado, nine resources, three armitage code busting, three bank job, three decoy, and seven icebreakers, two corroder from Anarch, two femme fatale, just one Gordian blade from Shaper, and two ninja. So only one decoder, two fractors, four killers, and then additionally three sneak door betas. This adds up to 15 influence, but of course now Gabe has 17 available, so you could shove something else in there. Malefact's corp deck was HB, Engineering the Future, a 49-card deck, nine agendas, the only agendas you can use, three accelerated beta test, three priority requisition, three private security force, 
Six assets, three Adonis campaign, three Melange Mining Corp. Two upgrades, corporate troubleshooter, both. Eight operations, three archived memories, two biotic labor, three hedge fund. Eight barriers, two Heimdall 1.0, three Wall of Static, three Wall of Thorns from Jinteki. Eight code gates, two Chum from Jinteki three Enigma, three Tollbooth from NBN, and eight Sentries, two Archer from Wayland, three Ichi 1.0, three Roto Turret. That's 24 ice, which is kind of a lot. And of course, this is 15 total influence, and now with the reboot project adjustments, HB's identity only gets 12. So the deck list, which I've also posted on uh, Reteki DB, I've made some adjustments, and I'll tell you about those in a minute. Here are Malefact's deck comments. I really like Haas. I'm not entirely sold on their ice. Ichi is pretty fantastic, but Heimdall is only sort of all right, and I don't run Victor at all. Uh, I will make a side note here. Victor is a lot better in the reboot version with his extra strength. Continuing, this is partly why all my out-of-faction influence was spent on exotic ice from around the world. Archers, tollbooths, walls of thorns, chum. The praises of tollbooth have been sung many times before. Archer isn't ideal in Haas because of the lack of one-point agendas, but it combos nicely with shooter, by which he means corporate troubleshooter, and can really punch a hole in a runner's rig if they don't prepare for it. The fear of Archer is also enough to put some folks off running a server entirely. Chum works well in a Haas deck. It's great in front of Ichi, and works with Heimdall, too. It's a good way of counteracting an FF'd Tollbooth, that would be Femme Fatale. It's a nice play in front of Archer. Wall of Thorns is okay. It's a nice ice to set off early game in the hope of catching your opponent unawares and discarding their breakers and only costs one influence, so you can stack them high. Having a high proportion of ice is key to getting beta test to work reliably. So there's the reason for the 24 ice. Having playtested this thoroughly, I'm inclined to drop the chum and a wall of thorns for a sand sand city grid and an extra biotic labor or secretary, it's aggressive secretary, or shooter, and another Heimdall. Having Sansan gives Haas a lot more options against decks like Orange Devils, that's the runner-up, which can confidently run any server in the late game because it lets you score PSF from hand, that's Private Security Force, with the help of a single Biotic Labor and 12 credits. Now in the deck I've posted online, uh, in keeping with his suggestions in this last paragraph, I have taken out the two chum and one wall of thorns and replace them with a biotic labor, corporate troubleshooter, and Heimdall. There wasn't enough room, of course, with the influence limits for another sand for the sand sand city grid. If possible, that is, if not playing criminals with infaction account siphons, I like to build up a large stock of cash early in the game and sit on it. Having a big pile of money is great 
because it lets you set up roto-turret archer traps for your opponent. I'm sure Wayland players will agree. Now his comments on his criminal deck. Ah, Gabe. Fun to play and devastatingly effective. Criminal cards let you poke holes in your enemy's weak points and keep poking and poking until they bleed. I don't think I fielded an optimal criminal deck in the tournament. In future, I think I'll drop a corroder to let me run a copy of Maker's Eye. Another lesson learned from Hollis. I found that I never actually played Flem, which will likely go in favor of a single copy of Crypsis. I play three copies of Sneak Door because I want one in my opening hand. I will mulligan to get one. I think it's vitally important to be able to attack HQ from two fronts as soon as possible. Although I've noticed some folks starting to play down only one huge server as a response to the existence of Bank Job, I still see pads and other assets in separate servers pretty frequently. And that's something I guess I could have added to my pad campaign statement is that one thing that makes it a little bit worse is the presence of Bank Job for criminals. My respect for Account Siphon has increased throughout the tournament, and also as a result of some of my matchups at the most recent Exeter City Grid. Playing one or multiple Account Siphons to reduce a corpse bank balance to zero is a horrifying move. Now, I'm not going to quote the entire thread, but one commenter, a user named Temelin, had three questions that uh, Malefact responded to. First, about the uh, inclusion of decoy in his criminal deck. Isn't crash space better than decoy 95% of the time? Malefact's response. The decoys in my deck are there for the sole purpose of stopping scorched earth tag and bag. As a result, this deck does less well against decks that run a lot of tracing and tagging, especially ice like Data Raven or Hunter, than it than if it had been running Crash Space. I have been toying with the idea of putting a copy of Crash Space back into the deck for that reason. However, I think that what will happen, probably, is that I'll start running three Rabbit Hole when the first data pack comes out, and that will sort the problem out for me. On the downside, I'm probably going to have to drop Diesel to make them fit. The second question. I was thinking about throwing a Wild Side or two into this deck Every deck I build. From a magic background, it seems powerful, but I could be valuing cards completely wrong with so few games under my belt. Malefact's response? I think Wildside is very powerful, but my feeling is that it isn't great in a vanilla criminal deck like mine. I think the main reason for this is that unlike Shapers or Anarchs, if you use that type of deck, you're not trying to build up a formidable rig in quite the same way. Plus, you have tricks that let you run without a full rig for many rounds. Sneak door, inside job, forged activation orders, special order to get that one breaker you need. At this early stage of the game, playing wild side is shooting yourself in the foot. You want every click you can get, usually to run the corp mercilessly while it's still defenseless. Then, in the mid-game, there's a limit to how many cards criminals want to or are able to play. You'll notice that my deck is mostly events. So burning through it constantly is not ideal as you end up discarding 
quite a lot of useful stuff. Then there's the problem of influence. Two wild side is six influence, same as diesel. But if you want one copy, ESOPs, to turn it off, that's eight influence total. And one other thing that's good about wild side is that it means decks that like doing a lot of damage over the course of the game, Jinteki, have less of a noticeable impact because you're so efficient at drawing. However, it's not an archetype that seems particularly popular at the moment. The third question from Temelin. Close to half of this deck is credit generators. Do you feel like that is the right amount? Malefact's response. Money cards in my criminal deck. Account Siphon, three. Easy Mark, three. Sure Gamble, three. Desperado, two. Armitage Code Busting, three. Bank Job, three. Infiltration, two. I make that 17, 19, if the infiltrations do end up getting used for cash. So yeah, close to half, about two-fifths, I reckon. I'm honestly not sure what the right proportions should be. But my feeling is that in Netrunner, money equals power. And therefore, anything that can get you richer relative to the corp is probably a good thing. A lot of these cards also have important secondary purposes. Desperado, for the MU that lets you keep Sneak Door and your rig. Although, note in the reboot project, that MU is not there anymore. Account Siphon for draining the corpse cash. Bank Job for remote server mind games. Infiltration for... Infiltrating. Account Siphon definitely works best if you can combo it with another Siphon, so I would always run three of those. Bank Job can end up being useless, but if your opponent runs Pad, it's an easy four credits. Five, the Desperado. He's including the cost of trashing the pad there. It's probably the only one I'd consider dropping copies of right now, if the meta changed. That again is Malefacts, Board Game Geek, Octagon Tournament Number 1, from the fall of 2012, his decks and his analysis. The Maker's Eye is focused on artists in the game, or art, and this time it will be Matt Zeilinger. That's my best guess on how to pronounce his last name, Matt Zeilinger. Uh, he is a noticeable, a notable artist in Netrunner. He has 70 cards in the reboot card pool. If you include all the Fantasy Flight and NSG cards, it's 104. In the core set, Matt's cards include Easy Mark, Pipeline, Sacrificial Construct, Shipment from Mirror Morph, Astroscript Pilot Program, Psychographics, and Ice Wall. And of those, Pipeline, Ice Wall, Sacrificial Construct, those actually turn up being anomalies because the vast majority of his work on this game is people including many of the runner identities, not in the core set, as I just said, but starting with the runner identity in the very first data pack, a lot of the early runners are Matt Zeilinger specials. I'm going to cre uh, provide several links to his work. He has an art station page. He has an in-print shop, if you'd like to get some prints 
of to buy some prints of his work, support him in that way. He has a personal site. And uh, there's an interesting page article on how he created some of the alt art for noise using Photoshop. It's the picture of noise that you see on this podcast's album art. And so I'll provide links for all of those. One of the titans of the uh, Netrunner art scene, Matt Zeilinger. Many of the cards discussed in this week's episode are linked in the show notes. Music is provided by Alexi Action. The website for the, for the show is netrunner2.1.com. The word point is spelled out. Right now, that just takes you to the Reboot Project homepage. You can play online at reteki.fun. Contact me on Discord or BoardGameGeek or Reddit. My username is auberman, A-W-E-B-E-R-M-A-N. I encourage you to join me on Discord for our 2.1 game nights. We are just finishing up the revised core right now and getting ready to introduce the first data pack. And my email address is anreboot2.1, where the point there is a decimal point, at gmail.com. The AstroScript pilot program this time around is, again, Gabe. He was the only one of the runners that made the transition from the original core set to the revised core set, and they gave him a whole new backstory, not back, new backstory, a whole new story about him in the rulebook there. I'll run through that in the epilogue. Thanks for listening. Gabriel Correa Santiago, El Lobo. The first thing he does on jacking out, the very first thing, is reach for the gun. He sits up from the chair, lets his cyber eye scan the room. No sign of anything amiss, but El Lobo isn't one for taking unnecessary chances. He tucks his console back into the bag, rolls up the cord, and in five minutes, there's no trace he was ever there. Climbing up from the Undercity is like traveling through time, moving from his past to his future, from darkness and poverty, street bangers and callejeros hustling for the next score, through the flashing lights of seedy commerce, up to the hopper pad where his Guangzhou awaits him. You've come a long way, he murmurs, as he settles back in the hopper and stows his gun close at hand. He lets his console set up a decryption routine for his haul, while the autopilot takes him to his place in Rutherford. His palatial suite in Rutherford, because what is the point of all this if you live in a fragging squat drinking rainwater and sleeping on a cot? Gabriel's suite isn't on the top floor, because that's just begging for trouble, but it is near the top, over a click above the unseen ground below. It's a hotel suite that takes up most of the west wall of the Ark. From this perch, he can watch the sun set over the Pacific as he wakes up and starts his day. 
The marble bathtub means unwinding in luxury at daybreak. And best of all, someone else comes in and cleans up after him when he's done. He leaves big tips, because he can, and because having the staff on his side can only help if something goes wrong. The whole staff was replaced with androids a while back, but he still tips them. Maybe the androids use the creds themselves, or maybe their bosses take it away from them at the end of shift. After a shower and a shave, he checks his rig. The files are decrypted. His console has already flagged the valuables. He could, in theory, take the rig online right here and sell them on the shadow net. But that would be mixing business and pleasure, putting his comfortable life here at risk. So instead, he slides the console back into his bag, chooses his best suit, and walks back to the hopper pad. There's a couple ahead of him, a Nipponese woman and her Latino boy toy, already tipsy, giggling as the clone valet ushers them toward their hopper. It's a Haas Auto exemplar. Half a million easy, real leather seats, luxury interior, AI with manual override. Gabriel looks at his own hopper and hates it. A Guangzhou? What was he thinking? He deserves better. He could grab his gun and with two squeezes of the trigger, take the woman's hopper from her. But it'd be a vulgar crime. Stupid. Unprofessional. Too public. He climbs into the hopper and tells it to take him to Esmeralda's. He has data burning a hole in his pocket. Data that needs a buyer. And he needs money. Desperately. Haas autos are not cheap.